You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Our topic today is, this is a fun topic and, and really a, an interesting topic. It's ghosts. Um, and with us is author Barbara Silry, who's written several books about ghosts, um, including one called The the Haunting of Mississippi, another one about The, the Haunting of Louisiana. And she lives in uh, on Cape Cod. So naturally, she's done one about The Haunting of Cape Cod. Uh, she's also done some books just about places. Uh, um, she's a TV documentary about Biloxi memories in the Broadwater Beach Hotel. And um, she's done some um, some poetry and um, including one called Apology in D Minor, which I think is kind of a, a really cool name. And she's done a novel uh, and including one called Ghosts Within and Ashes of Old Lovers. What a great name, too. So anyway, well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, well, let's begin. What is a ghost? What is a ghost? That's a good question. I think different people have different definitions. Some people feel it is just an essence or a presence of people who had lived at a site before. Other people feel like it is the soul or the spirit of a person. And then for those around Halloween, it's sort of a, a fun kind of childish apparition that appears. So depending upon someone's perspective, they have a different interpretation of what a ghost is. And I have found that most people today that I've interviewed and talked to don't think of it as some kind of scary monster, rather more of a kind of a benevolent presence. It sometimes has a little bit of a quirky personality. Is there anything visual to it? Um, yeah. People that I've interviewed who claim that they have actually seen the ghost, they describe sometimes a shadowy figure. Sometimes they say they can see the face quite clearly, but maybe not the rest of the body or um, no one ever really says it's like 3D, full color, that kind of thing. Some may just describe seeing the body part. Uh, there is one woman who described just seeing the boots coming near her in the room, the boots of a revolutionary, American revolutionary soldier. So again, depending on someone's perspective, they all have different versions of what they see or perceive to see. Yeah, one thing I've never understood, if someone sees the ghost of a, a Confederate soldier, um, and yet he's wearing the uniform. I mean, how do the, the uniforms transcend into, into ghosts? Or is that a... Well, they seem to, if they see, um, for example, at Lloyd Hall, there is supposedly a Confederate soldier that has remained there. His spirit has remained there. He was shot there in the house. And uh, the two children in the house uh, surprised the owner of the house, the mother, 
and they kept talking about Harry and Harry did this and Harry was so much fun to play with. And, and finally the mother said to them, well, who is this Harry you're talking about? We don't have a relative by the name of Harry. There's no one that works here by the name of Harry. And the two children who at the time, I think were seven and nine, turned to their mother and they said, well, mom, Harry is our ghost. He's our friend and he wears a uniform. And so from that, the mother did some research and indeed heard the story or learned the story that there had been a Confederate soldier in the house and he had been shot in the house. So that's how they came to the conclusion that it was a Confederate soldier. Boy, if I'd have seen a ghost when I was seven and nine, I would have just started <laughs> running. And so the, the, because it did have a, a sort of scary but again, you know, I was talking um, several times with Tita Moss, who owns the Myrtles in St. Francisville, and she had shared the story of her two-year-old and her four-year-old interacting with ghosts in the house. And she became concerned, and she consulted with Kathleen Hubler-Ross, who wrote the book on death and dying. And she told Tita, who was a former school principal, that children under the age of two can't conjure. They can't make up something they haven't seen. They can take a cookie out of a cookie jar. They can lie if they were asked, oh, did you take that cookie? And they can be chewing on it and say, no, no. But she said what they can't do is they can't make up something that they haven't seen. And this little boy was in the bedroom and he was looking up at the ceiling and Tita was dressing him. And he kept pointing to the chandelier on the ceiling and telling his mother there was a little girl trapped in the, uh, hanging from the chandelier. And Tita said she looked at her son and she said, what would you like mommy to do? And he wanted her to get the little girl down. And they had only been living in the Myrtles for three weeks. And she had warned all the staff that she didn't want them telling her children anything about ghosts or scaring them at all. So she said to her knowledge, they had never heard the story of the two little children and the mother that had been poisoned at the murders. So they had no way of knowing the story. And all of a sudden, here's her little boy who's only been there for a couple of weeks. And he's talking about a little girl hanging from the chandelier. So I've heard a lot of things in interviewing people. I've found most of the people I've interviewed to be very credible, lawyers, doctors, school teachers. And when they tell these stories, all they're doing is sharing their experiences with me. Have you ever seen a ghost? Have I ever seen a ghost? Well, when I first started doing book presentations, I would take the PBS stance and I would say, I'm open to the opportunities. And now I just say, sure. Um, I've just been around too many people that have shared things with me. And I've had certain things happen in doing research for either the documentaries or the book that I can't explain. And my, my favorite one was I wasn't even doing anything about ghosts that day. We were at an old plantation on the west bank of the river, and we were interviewing the gentleman. This is in living. New Orleans, right? In, in New Orleans, yeah. up near Vachery, at yeah. Homeplace Keller, and we were interviewing him, and he was talking about the kitchen in the house, and I was standing there facing him during the interview. Behind him, you could see the back of the house, you could see one of the windows that had been broken open. And I had a cameraman on one side, I had an audio guy on the other side. 
And all of a sudden, in this boarded up house, as I was doing the interview, there was a figure of a woman in the window. And then she stuck her head through the window. And I whispered to my cameraman, hoping he had zoomed in on a close-up and couldn't see this window anymore. Is she in the shot? Is she in the shot? He didn't answer me. So I thought, okay, we're good. Um, that window is not in the shot, so you can't see this woman. And then she just sort of walked away. After the interview was over and we were packing up to come back to New Orleans, I turned to my cameraman who was driving. And I said, oh, it's a good thing you're on a close-up. When that woman stuck her head through the, through the window behind Mr. Keller. And he said, Barbara, I don't know what you're talking about. And he was a joker, so I thought, okay, he's just pulling my leg. So I turned to the audio guy who was standing on the other side of me, all three of us looking in the same direction. And he said, Miss Barbara, I promise you I didn't see anything. So I have no explanation for why. I saw a woman in the window who was as clear to me as you are right now. And the two guys on either side of me didn't see anything. I can kind of go, oh, maybe it was somebody that somehow got in the house, even though it was boarded up and was wandering around and heard our voices. Is that a possibility? Sure. But the thing that really bothered me to this day is why the two guys who were looking the same direction I was didn't see anything. So that's sort of my, yeah, I saw a ghost story. <laughs> and, and what did she do? She just... Stared she just at walked you. away. She watched, she stuck her head. It was maybe maybe 10 seconds at the most. Came up to the window. Um, all I remember now is that she had gray hair. She was a rather large woman. And um, just stuck her head through the where the glass should have been in the window and kind of looked at us and then walked away. Or I thought she walked away. Oh. Um, there are places in Louisiana, like what the Myrtles, mm -hmm. uh, that plantation. Um, have you been there? And is, is that real? Have you have you seen anything? Or I have been have to any the Myrtles stories? two, three, four times. And the Myrtles, actually, surprisingly, is where I went after Katrina. We left late the night before, my daughter and I, and tried to book a room, couldn't book a room. And finally, I remembered, or she remembered, she said, Mom, why don't you call that ghost place of yours? Mm -hmm. So I called up there at the Myrtles and they said, Look, we, you know, we're booked, but we'll put out some air mattresses on the floor of the restaurant. There had been a French restaurant there on the grounds. And so that's where I spent the first night after Katrina and stayed there for about two and a half weeks following Katrina. And my my experience there was I was in the Judge Clark Woodruff's bedroom. And I woke up in the morning to the smell of roses. And I thought, oh, how lovely, there are roses in the room. And I'm looking around the room for this vase of roses. And I turn and there on the nightstand next to my bed are indeed roses, only they're artificial roses. And when I leaned in closer to breathe them, I started sneezing because they were so full of dust. And then this smell of roses totally disappeared. I checked with housekeeping afterwards. They did not have, didn't use air fresheners. No one brought roses inside. No, no bouquets of roses anywhere. So again, odd things like that. I kind of just go, all right. There are things that happen in this world we can't really quite explain, and we can choose to accept them or reject them. That's just become my attitude with it. I'm just thinking about you and your daughter, the night before Katrina. Mm -hmm. trying to get a place to go to and like 
Well, the good news is that we got a place to stay. The bad news is that we have to sleep with ghosts. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and like I said, I've been there several more times. And I was there once the week before Halloween to sign books. And it was incredible. They actually had to hire police to uh, kind of manage the traffic of all the people that wanted to walk through the myrtles during the Halloween season. And they continue to be very successful. They are said to be America's most haunted home. And I think one of the other reasons why people go there are there are supposedly so many ghosts there. You have children, you have adults, you have a murder, you have a poisoning. So there are a lot of events that have happened in history at the Myrtles that in and of themselves are kind of mysterious and creepy in a way. So, you know, over years, the, some of the stories have changed, but the essence of having four or five ghosts there, that can, continues to be very, very popular. I think that's what has been the attraction is the variety of ghosts, the ages of all the different ghosts. And the fact that you can go back in history, in the history of the Myrtles itself, and you can track the different owners. So you know that even though some of these stories may be exaggerated, they are based on actual facts. So, assuming those are all ghosts and it's not some kind of skullduggery by the owner or something, mm -hmm. how does this happen? that this one place is such a concentration of ghosts? Well, again, if you go back in the history of the plantation, it was founded by or built by a, uh, if I can remember his name, General Bradford, who was an American Revolutionary War uh, soldier. And then it was, he married, uh, his daughter married Judge Clark Woodruff. So we know these people actually lived at the house. We know that it was a plantation. We know that there were slaves. Now the whole story of Chloe and the ghost, and Chloe being the ghost that comes back there. Do we know for a fact that a Chloe was a slave on the plantation? No. Um, do we know that the children died at the plantation? Yes. Could they have died of something else other than poisoning? Sure, they could have died of yellow fever, they could have died from the common cold. But we do know that two of the children of Judge Woodruff did die at the plantation. So again, I think ghost stories are sort of a, a weaving together of oral tradition, folklore, uh, as Maida Owens, who was the folk life director of the Louisiana uh, Department of what is it, Culture, Recreation and Tourism has said, there's folklore, which is oral tradition, and there's fake lore. And she said she doesn't mind fake lore, so long as people are told ahead of time, this is for entertainment purposes. Whereas folklore is stories that have been passed on through the community for generations. It's part of the culture, it's part of the tradition. So for example, in the French Quarter, there's a lot of ghost, um, ghost tours. And if you go on any of them, some stick pretty close to the truth. Some kind of do the fake lore version and make up stories for entertainment value. The, um, and, and ghost tours are becoming fairly plentiful in towns around the country, especially the, 
the old towns. Uh, uh, well, I think they found that one of the reasons that one of the justifications for the ghost stories by a lot of historic societies, by a lot of cemeteries, is people will come out and they can share history with the people. Because if you say it's a ghost story, most people will listen. And so it gives them an opportunity a, to make some money as a fundraiser and b also to be able to share the history of the town or the historic site and for the ghost tours that wander places like the french quarter yes it's a purely economic it's a business it's strictly business and i think it was back in the 1980s chris rose who wrote for the times picayune did this whole article about how the tour groups, the tour guides were actually fighting over the rights to tell a particular ghost story. And it got to be a real problem. And one of the places it got to be a real problem was, was at O'Flaherty's Irish Channel Bar on, the, on Toulouse Street. And the owner, Daniel Flaherty, originally let the ghost tours come in to the courtyard and tell their stories because supposedly there are three ghosts there, Angelique, Joseph, and Mary who all died there um, in the 1800s. But then it became a problem because these ghost tours started fighting with each other for the rights to go into a Flaherty's courtyard. They became very noisy. And so Danny asked them to leave and he said they could no longer come to O'Flaherty's because they were disturbing his paying guests. So one of the ghost tour operators got upset that he was banned. So he came to Danny and he said, I'm going to do a clearing on your property and I'm going to make all the ghosts go away. So Danny's version of that is he would say, yeah, the ghosts did go away for a while and they went to pubs all around the world and they decided they liked O'Flaherty's music the best and they're back. <laughs> well, good for them. Um, at least it was Irish music, you know, that's... Uh... Uh, that's fun. The um, okay, you've done books about ghosts in Louisiana, mm -hmm. and Mississippi, and Cape Cod, which would be Massachusetts. Is there common denominators to some of the stories that you find from place to place, like sort of like a standard story, the same way like with urban legends, you know, I, place to place? Yes, there are similarities. I don't do urban legends for the very reason that there's nothing there for me to research. You know, oh, a shadowy figure crossed a rural road somewhere. There's nothing I can do with that. So when I did the first documentary, The Haunting of Louisiana, that the book was based on, I decided I had to come up with some kind of a pedigree, some way to narrow the field to include the stories. And so my take on it is if I'm gonna do a ghost story, I need the ghost to the story to have been circulating in that community for about 100 years. I need that ghost to be based on an actual person so I can investigate their life. And I need it to be connected to a historic site. So I became kind of a ghost snob in that way. So I, though, that's how I, when I'm doing my stories, that's what I'm looking for. And in terms of action, sometimes the ghost is someone who has been murdered or committed suicide. And other times, it's, it's a very benign story in terms of that particular ghost that just 
for their own reasons, love the place and lingers on. Um, so yeah, but I don't hear, it used to be, I think when I was growing up, you would hear stories about ghosts, you know, rattling chains and scaring people. I hear very, very little of that anymore. I think the most famous ghosts is uh, in New Orleans is uh, mm -hmm. Mrs. LaLaurie. Is that the, the house? Oh, Madame LaLaurie. Yes, Madame this... LaLaurie. She was quite a character. And I did go back and read some of the old newspaper accounts about her. So apparently a lot of the stories were true, that she did have slaves in the house and that she mistreated them. And the way that it became public is there was a fire at the house. And so when the fire uh, men came in and started trying to put out the fire, they did indeed find slaves uh, that were chained to the walls that had been tortured. So the stories about her mistreating the people that worked for her, apparently according to these newspaper accounts of the time, were true. So uh, I think she was married three times, three times, four times. I think Lori was her fourth husband, I believe. Um, so again, if, when you can go back and you can do the research and you can learn different characteristics about these people, um, so that makes the story more interesting to me. It's not just someone making up a piece of fiction. It's actually based on a real person who occupied a particular site. So what is it that people see in the LaLaurie house? Is it her or the, or the slaves or? Well, one tour guide that I interviewed, uh, Tom Duran, who had done tour guides in London, England, prior to doing tours in New Orleans. Uh, when he does, did his tour, he doesn't anymore. Um, he would take the people to the LaLaurie house and he would tell the story of a little girl running around up on the rooftop and she was one of the mistreated slaves of LaLaurie, of Madame LaLaurie, and that she fell off the, the rooftop, rooftop and she now haunts the LaLaurie mansion. Are little girls common to ghost stories? I mean, I could see that really drawing the interest and passion of people hearing the stories. Yes, and one of my favorite ghost stories uh, happened, and actually when I did the book, The Haunting of Louisiana, one of the reasons I did the book is there were a, a lot of stories that didn't fit into the standard one hour, 56 minutes, 40 seconds timeline of a PBS uh, documentary. So I had things that were left off. And also I wanted to be able to share with people some of the things that happened behind the scenes with the crew and I. And on that particular story, this was um, the Lafitte guest house. And the story is that there's a little girl in the Lafitte guest house that's trapped in the mirror, a ghost. So we decided we'd do a little bit of reenactment for that scene. And we got a little girl, her name was Cedar, her parents are Native American. And we kept her downstairs because this mirror uh, was upstairs. And all she was told, she was not told she was gonna be a ghost. We just told her that we wanted her to walk up in the upper hallway and we would just get some footage of her walking through the hallway. And we got already upstairs. We had Cedar downstairs. We could hear her laughing and talking. And then we called her upstairs 
and I stood at one end of the hallway, the cameraman was at the other end of the hallway close to the mirror. And we asked Cedar, or cued Cedar to say, go ahead, just walk down the hallway. And she refused. And uh, we tried like three or four more times. Her father was standing next to me, who was also Native American, Greyhawk, and we heard of him. And um, he, she just wouldn't move. And so I was about ready to give up. And he finally said, okay, Cedar, I'm going to go, I'm going to stand here next to you and your mom's going to go down at the other end of the hall. And all you need to do is walk down the end of the hall from me, pass the mirror to your mom. So she finally did that. We got it in one take. That was it. Brought her downstairs. Once she was downstairs, you, we could hear her laughing and being happy again. And so I asked Greyhawk, I said, what, what was the problem? Why didn't she want to walk down the hallway? And she shared with her father that she didn't want to walk past the mirror because there was there was a little girl in the mirror and she was crying. So that just kind of gave me goosebumps because obviously the adults, we didn't see anything. So here's this little girl, Cedar was like maybe six or seven at the time. And she's telling us that she sees another little girl trapped in the mirror. We did not tell her the story. There's no way she would have read that story or known about the story ahead of time. So again, just one of those strange things that I have no explanation for. And, and which, which house was this? This is the Lafitte Guest House, which is right next to Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop. Okay. And in that house, we later learned after doing a little bit of research that it was a townhouse owned by the Lisi's family and that they did have several daughters and that a couple of the daughters did die in the house of yellow people. Have you ever talked to that girl again like as she grew older? And yes. yes. Um, as a matter of fact, I went when she was when she was a baby, I went to her name ceremony and I have stayed in touch with her father and I was promoting the haunting of Louisiana on Facebook and Cedar, she's on my Facebook and she messaged me back and she goes, I remember that. I remember that when I was a little girl. Okay. And so you have, and so she still remembers it. She still remembers it. She still remembers that whole evening that we were shooting and she still remembers being scared going past the mirror. So about how old would she be now? Uh, she now has a child of her own, so I would say Cedar is now in her late 20s, early 30s. Okay, okay. The, um, of, of, of all the places in, well, tell me about Mississippi. Does Mississippi have a really extraordinary haunted place? Or... I, initially, I, when um, Pelican my publisher at the time uh, contacted me and said, oh, well, you did this book on the haunting of Louisiana. It's doing really well. Would you do the same thing for Mississippi? And I was very hesitant because I hadn't spent that much time in Mississippi to begin with. And I really hadn't heard that much about Mississippi or ghosts or spirits. So I took a road trip and um, just went from place to place, little towns, Tupelo, Mississippi, Natchez, Mississippi, um, up by Lake Washington, a little town called Glen Allen. And I found everyone was just really 
anxious to share stories with me. And then if I, I would go to one place and then the people at that place would send me to another place. So I was at the, in Greenville, Mississippi, I was at the old armory, which has a ghost of a soldier that used to be there. And while I, and they now use it as the head of the Convention and Visitors Bureau. And the head of the Convention and Visitors Bureau said to me, well, you need to go, you need to go to Lake Washington and you need to go to a tackle shop called the Bait and Fangs Tackle Shop. And you need to meet up with a gentleman there and he will take you to a historic house that is now abandoned and it is haunted. And I did just that. And we explored this house and he shared with me why he wouldn't go inside. And he shared with me his experience of having a door slammed in his face. And he felt it was the woman who used to live in the house. So it was really kind of a, a fun couple of months driving around Mississippi and encountering people who were more than willing to share stories about what they believed were places that were haunted or ghosts that were there. When you talk about the door being slammed in his face, mm -hmm. are, are ghosts ever impish to people? Or are they, everything in case like they're rude or try to? I've, in that case, he just felt this particular ghost did not like men because he had escorted women there to this place in the past. And because he was trying to get preservationists interested in finding grants that would restore this historic house. And uh, he said they didn't have any issues, but when he tried to go in the house, the door was slammed in front of his face. So he felt it was just a case of the ghost did not like men at the house. And would it be that you find them most often, it would make sense, like, like in old towns, I guess, could you have more old buildings, I guess? Uh, I tend to always, wherever I travel, I tend to always find the historic section of a town because, again, I'm looking for stories that have hit sort of the one century mark, have some kind of um, longevity to them. These are not just, oh, my aunt died yesterday and she's now haunting our house. I wasn't interested in those kinds of tales. I was interested in something that had a little more substance to it. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of how I've always approached it. I always go to, I find a historic church or a historic house or a restaurant, or um, I, I've even gone to some small shipyards uh, where there's a ghost connected with it. So I do look for something that is older as opposed to a newer building. When you say church, it brings to mind, are there some religions that are more supportive of uh, ghost stories than others? Yes. There, I have found that the, oh, and I'm trying to remember the full name of it. Um, he's an archbishop of the Israelite Black Spiritual Church in New Orleans. And when I was interviewing him about his, because I wanted to get a religious perspective as well, when I was interviewing him about ghosts and he was very adamant, yes, yes, you can connect with spirits of the past, you can speak to them. Um, so he very much believed that there was no gap 
between the human world, if you will, and the spiritual world that they definitely were connected. I interviewed Archbishop Cannon um, prior to his death, and he was very adamant that there's no such thing as ghosts. So yes, I think different religions embrace the fact that you can connect with the spiritual world and others feel that's inappropriate. There's no such, no such thing as ghosts. And I interviewed Father William Maestri, who at the time was a Catholic moral theologian. And his thing was that um, we, should, we shouldn't be, we should be taking care of the living rather than being interested in the dead. All right. What is, well, first, let me just remind me about, we're talking to Barbara Silvery, who's an author, uh, and she's written several books about ghosts, including Haunting of Louisiana, Haunting of Mississippi, a um, book about New Orleans ghosts, too, and then also uh, Haunting of Cape Cod. And her books are available on the websites and places where you find good books. Barbara, what is an orb? I personally have never seen an orb. I personally think an orb is just a distortion of a camera lens. But if you deal with some of these people who believe they are, um, they will promote themselves as paranormal investigators. Yes, they will talk all the time about orbs. So, and they describe them as sort of a round shape that appears. And if you see that, that's a sign of a ghost. But it's nothing that you'd be aware of and it, it doesn't, no, apparently they see it like floating past, uh, oh. but I, that's not anything I've experienced. And in terms of any interviews that I have done with people who believe in ghosts, I've never heard them describe it. The only people I've ever heard describe orbs are ghost hunter guides or people that um, are the title, they give themselves with paranormal investigators. So when I do these things, I don't go around with light meters and heat sensors, or so I, I don't, I don't follow those kind of techniques. I simply talk to people. Um, other than, other than the Myrtles, what would be like Louisiana's most interesting haunted places? Um, well, one that I had a lot of fun with per se, was the Lamel Mansion on Esplanade Avenue. And we had gone there against the television crew at the time. I did not tell them that the reason I was going to be interviewing Ruth Bodenheimer was in connection with any ghost stories. I just simply said we were doing an interview that day. And when we got there, I was interviewing Ruth. She kept talking about a gentleman, Mr. Uh, Charles Andrew Johnson. And she kept saying that he was instrumental in helping her restore the house and decorate the Lanil mansion. And she kept talking about him and talking about him. And finally, uh, she said, oh, I want to go get one of his books. She left the room and the cameraman turned to me and he goes, well, are we going to be interviewing this Mr. Johnson next? And I said, I would love to, except he's been dumb, dead for like 250 years. <laughs> And at that point, Ruth walked back in the room and she saw that the cameraman was embarrassed and she goes, oh, honey, don't worry about that. She said, you know, I work for a steamboat company and I'm married and they know I'm married. 
but they heard me talk about Mr. Johnson so many times, they thought I was having an affair with him. <laughs> wow. Oh. So I, I thought that was, I had never, I didn't know that there was a ghost there, but um, Ruth definitely feels that he is her decorator, that she, whenever she has needed something for the house, she has little private chats with him. So uh, I, I think every historic location in the French Quarter, just because of its lengthy history, has different stories associated with it, and certainly plantations. Uh, was it Lyle Saxon who wrote Gumbo Yaya has said, every old plantation has to have at least one ghost or hang its head in chains. So, yeah, they're, they're definitely, I, I don't think there's been a plantation that I went to that didn't have some ghost story, some haunted story associated with it, yet there is one that I had to get special permission to be able to talk about ghosts, and that was Destrehan Plantation, because they forbid their docents, their guides, to talk about ghost stories. And when I asked what the problem was, they said they have had physical damage to the plantation because of a ghost story. And it's all connected with the pirate Jean Lafitte and a ghost story that Jean Lafitte's ghost has been seeing over the Mississippi River, pointing to the plantation and pointing to it to indicate where he had buried treasure. And so while the house sat abandoned for a number of years, different treasure hunters went to the house, tore the walls apart, looking for John Lafitte's treasure. So they have a policy that the guides there are not allowed to talk about ghosts because they have suffered physical damage from people thinking there's buried treasure there. And I would assume they never found the uh, uh, any treasures. No, nope, uh, never found anything. <laughs> not that um, I'm aware of. Yeah, uh, you've also done a book about Cape Cod Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything different about the, the Cape Cod? Well, one, there's no plantations there. No. Is, there, is there anything different about the Cape Cod ghost stories than what you have over here? What is a little different is the attitude. Um, you know, New Orleans, Louisiana, they accept the fact that there are ghosts everywhere. Ghosts are the norm. You know, if a spirit of a deceased ancestor walked in the door and sat down at the table, it doesn't seem to bother people. But you know, in conservative New England, I did find it a little bit harder to get people to share stories about, you know, whether their historic site might still be haunted by someone who had lived there before. Uh, and then once I did get started and once uh, people felt that I was credible, I wasn't gonna tell something outlandish about their establishment, they would share stories. It was just a little harder to pull it out of them. And some of them would be almost a little embarrassed to be talking about a ghost. Okay, and so, uh, and I guess, where would the ghosts live? Are there, I guess there are some grand houses over there. Obviously there are. There are not as many grand houses as like a plantation style house, but there are a lot of, really old buildings. There's an inn, the old Yarmouth Inn, which used to be a stagecoach stop. And the owner there believes she has two ghosts. One is that, uh, she calls him the grouchy ghost. 
One is a, he was a dentist. He lived in the house and he rented rooms upstairs to school teachers in the area. So she believes she has a nice ghost that lives upstairs, the ghost of a school teacher. And she believes that they have a grouchy ghost who is downstairs and, you know, causes some issues. And she blames him for, I love this story, for letting her dogs out, for opening a door and letting her dogs out. And she says she has proof. They had a security tape, um, cameras running upstairs. They no longer rent out the upstairs. They just use the downstairs as a restaurant. And she went upstairs. They put their dogs up there during, when, during restaurant hours. And she had gone upstairs to get the dogs um, to take them back home. And she found that the door leading to their upper deck was opened and the dogs were out there. So they played back the security tape. And she said, you can see their two dogs barking at the wall as if they were barking at someone. And then the next thing you see on the security tape is the door leading to the outer deck open by itself, let out one dog and then open again and let out the other dog. So she blames that on their grouchy ghost. Wow. Well, this has been very, very educational. And if, and if people want to learn more about it, with this, um, what the haunting of Louisiana and the uh, what the haunting of Mississippi mm -hmm. and uh, well, the haunting of Cape Cod, you, you can probably get on the uh, on, on on the internet. Is there another uh, ghost book in your future? Yeah. Well, actually, what happened during the pandemic is that uh, I was called by Pelican, gave me a call. And they, as you know, were, uh, they are now a subsidiary of Arcadia Press, which put out a series called Haunted America. And they asked me if I would be interested in adapting my Haunting of Louisiana and my Haunting of Mississippi and Haunting of Cape Cod books to become part of this series as well and write a few new chapters and also um, you know, update some of the stories from the other books which I did, and so I have Haunted Louisiana is out, Haunted Mississippi is out, Haunted Cape Cod is out, and in 2023, uh, Haunted Nantucket, and um, the Haunted Mississippi Delta will be coming out in 2023. So I'm continuing, and they adapted one of the Haunted Cape Cod book into a children's book that's called Spooky Cape Cod. Oh, gee. <laughs> so a children's ghost book. A children's ghost book, yes. Yeah. Based on the, the original Haunted Cape Cod a book that I did. Well, where do the ghosts hang out on the Delta? I don't think of that as plantations. I think of more of like little shacks and things. I mean, where do you find them? Well, there are several stories. There are several um, Delta musicians, old musicians, that are buried in rural cemeteries and there is stories of their ghosts so the ghost stories connected with cemeteries ghost stories connected uh with several different older homes so you know wherever there's something i think that's older that's been around for a while people and especially if it's been abandoned for a little while people tend to start talking about 
who lived there before, which is why, is why I'm such an advocate for historic preservation, because once a building is gone, and once it has been torn down or fallen apart, you tend to forget what has happened there. You tend to forget that people live there, that there are events that happen there, if it's just an empty space. So that's why I also feel that preserving all these old tangible evidence of our history is very important. So I wonder what happens to ghosts when their building is torn down. <laughs> Do they move on to another place? Um, possibly. Sometimes I've had people believe um, there's a very large home in Columbus, Mississippi, and the owner there believes that when she restored the home, she believed that when she bought a certain bed, a four-teaster bed, that a ghost came with it. So she feels now the bed that's in that room is haunted itself. So do they travel with pieces of furniture? Do they travel as in the case of one in Mississippi where the portrait of the daughter of the family that owned the house, actually once that portrait was installed in the house, the docents now believe that she, her ghost is in the house. So yes, can they move on from place to place? Well, according to the stories that I've heard, yep, they can. Wow. Well, it's an age-old topic, but there's still a lot to learn about it, too. So anyway, Barbara, thank you very much. It's been uh, very interesting, um, and uh, I appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, also, I want to mention real quickly the TV documentaries you've done. Uh, this is for public TV in New Orleans, what the Biloxi memories and... Mm -hmm. And, and and what else? Uh, I've, I've done, there are so many of them. <laughs> yes, I started at Hidden Nation. I did on the Homer tribe of South Louisiana, yeah. which to this day is still trying to get federal recognition. They have state recognition, but not federal recognition. Yeah. And there's some 17,000 of them. And they're still struggling, mainly because they never went to war with the United States government. So there was never a treaty. There was never a formal document with the United States government, although there were documents shared between the Homas and the French government. So it's still been a ongoing struggle for them. So yeah, different ones, I've done Faded Ladies, which was all about New Orleans Creole architecture, Louisiana architecture. And again, the need for historic preservation to save these buildings, these churches, these homes, the slave quarters, the, the sugar mills. Because to me, without them, you lose, you lose pieces of our past. So the homers would have been better off had they gone to war against the United yes, States? Yes, apparently, yes. Because then there would have been some kind of treaty. There would have been some kind of official paperwork that says they exist. And the crazy part about it is that they were barred from public schools, attending public schools until um, the Civil Rights Act because they were labeled as Indians in the community. They were known as Indians and therefore they were discriminated against and not allowed to go to the public school system. Yet today, when they try to apply for federal recognition, they're basically told they don't exist as a tribe. Oh, that's a strange life lesson. Uh, yes. <laughs> Barbara, thank you very much.
Thank you, Errol. It was good to be with you. Good to talk to you and see you again. Yeah, I hope the next time in town we can see you also. Okay. But thanks. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.